As Stuart said, uh, a warm welcome, uh, particularly if this is your first time uh, joining us. It'd be great uh, if you could join us in the hall for coffee afterwards. But my name is Mike and I'm a curate here and um, I'm really looking forward to going through this passage with you today. <laughs> And uh, human flourishing is what I want to think about this morning, because it seems in many instances, in the way the world operates, it operates on the principle of a zero-sum game. And by that I mean, in order for one person to flourish, another person must fail by the same but opposite amount. This, in effect, balances the equation out. So if I gain one pound, someone else, somewhere else, must lose one pound. If one party prospers, another must fail by a commensurate amount. For example, if the price of sterling goes up against the euro, then it's great for all those here who want to go on holiday in France this summer, but it's not so good for any French people wanting to come to the UK. Or what is good news for Greece if some of their debts are written off or payment is delayed would be bad news for their creditors. Such a philosophy carries the idea that if there is only a certain amount of resources to play for, then I best get in quick to maximise my own interests and claim as much as I can for myself. Of course, such thinking promotes an attitude of competitiveness where there is a perception of scarce resources, then I'll seek to gain an advantage over others by putting my own interests first. And in our world of increasing personal autonomy, this way of thinking doesn't just apply to our financial transactions. It carries over into the way I conduct my human relationships. I can be guilty of assessing any personal friendships or thinking about spouses, etc., based on what's in it for me. I can raise my children in such a way where their happiness is secondary to how impressive their performance makes me look at the school gate. I can sideline a work colleague because there's a danger they'll get the promotion or big deal ahead of me. If I am to enjoy personal success, then unfortunately someone else must experience personal failure. I'm afraid that is just the way the world works. Is that the big plan? Is that the best the world has to offer? Does my flourishing really depend on somebody else's failure? Well, as I look at today's passage and you look at it with me, I'm pretty sure you're already itching to hear what I've got to say. And I want to suggest that the principle the Apostle Paul lays down is that Jesus wants every member of his body to flourish together by putting each other's needs ahead of our own. After all, the idea that we are all one in Christ, building each other up in love, is one of Paul's main arguments in his letter to the Ephesian church. So in God's household, every person gets to flourish together as one body. Therefore, if you've previously jumped over parts of this passage, or they've caused you to wince, or it has been communicated in such a way which has caused offence, then can I ask you to listen for the next 20 minutes or so with open minds. Hopefully some light will be shed, which might be helpful. And if it doesn't and I get it wrong, then I've had a lovely time with you here for the last two years as your curate. (laughs) 
If you have closed your Bible, please open them up to page 1176. That would be very useful to me. To begin with then, like all the books in the Bible, to understand the message, we need to understand the context. And the context here is that in the three basic relationships common to most people at the time Paul was writing, many people were not flourishing in Ephesus. In marriage relationships between husband and wife, in family relationships between parent and child, and in work relationships between employee and employer, All too often, the dominant party exploited their perceived authority, whilst the weaker party suffered by being ignored, compromised, oppressed, or abused. Let me give you some examples to explain what I mean. Concerning marriage, in Jewish law at the the time, the wife was very much her husband's possession, more of a thing than a person. And it was worse in the Greek world. The Greek husband expected his wife to run his home and to care for his legitimate children whilst he was free to find pleasure and companionship in the arms of other women. Fidelity amongst husbands was rare. Adultery was common. In the area of raising children, unwanted babies were often abandoned, weak and deformed ones were killed, and even healthy children were seen as a partial nuisance because they inhibited sexual promiscuity and complicated divorce. In the area of work, where a slave and master relationship was simply part of the fabric of society, masters saw their slaves as living tools who were there to be freely disciplined with torture or even to the point of death if those so desired. So it's into this context that the Apostle Paul radically challenges the cultural norms with his understanding of of how those who trust in Jesus should live out God's love in the practicalities of everyday life. Therefore, in verse 21, he gives us his driving principle. And that is, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Paul's primary concern is that the Christians in Ephesus look first to the needs of the other person before they look to their own. In other words, each person should seek to help others to flourish before they consider their own ambitions. And this is Paul's universal instruction to every Christian believer in Ephesus, no matter their status in society. Remember, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. As people seeking to model the love of Jesus, members of the Ephesian church were called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And my strong conviction is that this driving principle is entirely applicable for our lives today. However, it's impossible to stand up here and pretend such a selfless attitude comes easily when Kaz and I both find ourselves asleep in the middle of the night and my eldest daughter Hannah awakes at 3am having had a nightmare. It's sorely tempting to bury my head in the pillow in a way which communicates to Kaz, I am not budging, you better go and sort it out. And of course, there's many more other, more serious examples of preferring our own needs than this. But clearly, there are circumstances in our lives when submitting to the best interests of the other is not something that comes naturally 
or easily. In fact, it's no wonder that seen through the eyes of the modern person, the idea of submitting to one another can seem crazily offensive. It reveals a complete clash of worldviews. That's why, firstly, all the behaviours that Paul is seeking uh, to get the believers in Jesus to follow flow from being filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 5, verse 18. It is impossible to consistently demonstrate such a selfless attitude unless we are regularly doing the things that fill us with the presence of God in our lives. Only the power of God in our lives can enable us to love each other as Jesus loved us. Secondly, Paul says the reason we are are to submit to one another is out of reverence to Christ. Paul describes our submission to others as an act of worship to Jesus. When we enable others to flourish, it is one of the ways we glorify God's Son. So if I lovingly invest my time into the personal development of another rather than playing golf, it's one of the ways we glorify God's Son. It can be considered an act of devotion towards Jesus. And perhaps given all the negative baggage in our society with the word submission, then the idea of framing it in the context of devotion might be helpful for us. But let me be absolutely clear at this point. Paul's vision for the Christian church under God is that both parties involved in a relationship seek to fulfill their particular role in a way which enables the other to flourish at the same time. If one party abuses God's ideal, then the pattern breaks down. It's like the gearing on a bicycle. If a cog has a kink in it, or if the the gears are slightly out of line, then you can expect nasty clunks as you cycle along, and ultimately the chain is likely to break. Therefore, according to Paul's view, our submission to one another should always be freely ours to decide to give. Our submission is not something to be forced upon us under duress by a dominant party through their use of commanding authority, physical strength, manipulation, blackmail, or such like. Paul is not asking the battered wife, the abused child, or the bullied employee to submit to such torment as if that situation in any way brings glory to God. People who claim to be Christians, yet who force their will on others in such harmful ways, need to be stopped, and they completely discredit the name of God. So in the verses that follow, where Paul takes his driving principle of mutual submission and applies it to the three most common relationships in the ancient world, it's not that his instructions don't carry any relevance in our enlightened but messy modern world. Paul was not unaware of the messiness of life. After all, he grew up as a Jewish person, heavily influenced by Greek philosophy under Roman rule, applying what he knew of Jesus' love into the Ephesian context. Having travelled extensively, Paul understood complicated more than most. And Paul was also someone who understood what it was like to have been a person who previously oppressed the vulnerable. 
Paul was a person who had been challenged by Jesus, being made aware of God's grace, who received full forgiveness and pardon for his sin. So Paul, knowing he was as culpable as the next person for the messiness of life, still feels it's worth holding before the Ephesian church an ideal vision for human flourishing, where every party in a relationship seeks to submit to the other in a way which glorifies God. Paul does this in two main ways. Firstly, he liberates the weaker party. One of the most shocking things about this message of Paul is not Paul's use of the word submission, but rather the fact he speaks directly to those who wouldn't wouldn't normally be considered worth addressing. He gives the wives, the children, and the slaves a voice and the freedom to choose of their own accord to submit in the ways he suggests. Secondly, Paul completely redefines what's expected of those in the perceived position of authority. He turns the operating pattern of the cultural norm on its head by saying to those in positions of power, it's no longer about your control, rather it's about your care. So shall we now look at how Paul applies his vision for human flourishing in the practicalities of the three most common relationships of everyday life. So I'm going to spend the second half of the majority of my sermon looking at the marriage relationship between wife and husband, because many of the principles carry over into parenting and into our work relationships too. At this point, if you're not married, it may be tempting to to zone out. However, can I encourage you to stay tuned in? If you're something for whom marriage is something you may enter into to the future, then sometimes the wisdom in the Bible is something to be stored up for later. If you're someone here who's bereaved, if your marriage was difficult, then I hope reflecting on this topic briefly might bring some healing and forgiveness. If it was joyful, then I hope it might enable you to look back on some of the good times you had with your partner with fondness. If you're a person here who's going through the process or been through the process of divorce, then I hope that you may be comforted that the love and forgiveness which Jesus has demonstrated is already there for you because he has done everything necessary to restore you back into a relationship with his heavenly Father. So, in marriage... The Apostle Paul starts with the assumption that you want your partner to thrive. If you married for different reasons, whatever they were, this is now your main goal if you are a follower of Jesus. So Paul says, wives, if you want your husbands to flourish, submit to him as you do to the Lord. So much to say and so much potential mischief to cause. but to make three obvious but overlooked points. Point one. In verse 22, Paul tells the Ephesian wives if they haven't submitted to Jesus as their Lord, then it's going to be impossible to submit to their husbands. Unless they have the Spirit of God with them, it's not possible to get past first base. Point two. Paul's instructions concern the relationships between the Ephesian wife and her husband. Only. Paul is not saying all women should submit to all men in general. Point three. Paul's instruction to the Ephesian wives 
Well, he uses the word submit rather than the word obey, which he later asks the children and slaves to do in their relationships with their parents and employees, respectively. And there is a deliberate reason for this, and that is Paul sees a God-given equality from the other two types of relationship in the relationship between husband and wife. There is, in a sense, a negotiated space for discussions and interactions. As one 17th century uh, commentator says, women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him, near his heart to be loved by him. Yet despite these points, it's difficult to overlook the fact that the reason that Paul suggests a wife should submit to a husband in verse 23 is for the husband of the wife is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Before you throw your tomatoes at me, what we need to do is step back and... Forget any immediate offence which this causes and look at how Christ actually demonstrated what it meant for him to be the head of the church. The pattern is laid down in Paul's instructions in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. Can you imagine how offensive Paul's instructions must have been to the Ephesian husbands who had previously had everything their own way? Jesus uses his authority as the head of the church not to lay down the law, but instead to lay down his life in a willing sacrifice. And Paul is asking the husbands to do the same for their wives. The Ephesian husband is constantly to be about the business of beautifying his wife, cleansing her as cherishing her as Jesus loves his church. Headship for Jesus is not about rule, rather it is about responsibility. And a husband's responsibility is to love his wife as they do their own body. The reason Paul suggested a husband should behave this way is because just as Jesus and his church are inseparable, so an Ephesian husband is inseparable from an Ephesian wife. They are bound as one flesh in verse 31. In a society which sought to loosen the bonds of marriage in favour of promiscuity, Paul seeks to strengthen marriage. So what relevance do Paul's instructions to the Ephesian church have for marriage today? Well, time is limited, so I want to suggest three thoughts by way of application. And like Paul, I want to centre on the main areas in married life where I believe people are perhaps most tempted to rebel. To the wives here, if you want your husbands to flourish, encourage him to take responsibility for his leadership role. Enable him to step up to the responsibility to care for you. Demonstrate that you respect and value his contribution. If you're always seeking to undermine his opinion or talking negatively to him or to others about him, then he's likely to do one of two things which men do best. Either he'll put his feet up on the couch and bury his head in the sand of escapism, 
or he'll run away to a place where he receives affirmation. To the husbands here, if you want your wives to flourish, you must know that your life is not your own to lead. The love you show to your wife should model the pattern of Christ who prayed, not my will, but yours be done. You cannot flourish independently from your wife. One really practical tip that a college lecturer shared with me was that uh, when he got home from work, he considered that first hour at least on walking through his front door as a time where he was, like, in effect, still at work. In other words, his first focus on coming through the front door was to serve his wife and his children before even thinking about winding down to relax. And finally, to husbands, and this is really important. All too often, Christian men have neglected to look at Paul's instructions there to the husbands in verse 25 and instead use verse 23 as a proof text to hold their uh, wives to account, to say, I am the one who has the authority. The truth is that the only instructions that we should be concerned with are the ones in which we are directly addressed. Husbands, concern yourself only with the instructions that Paul assigns to you. But I know some of you might want to test me to the limit and say, well, what happens if push comes to shove and there's a disagreement between a husband and wife in such circumstances? Doesn't Paul's description of headship mean a husband's authority trumps that of his wife's? Mustn't the wife therefore toe the line? Husbands, I want you to see this is not your decision to make. If you force your wife's hand against her will, you are not following Paul's instruction to you in verse 25. And I would suggest that trouble is likely to result. A wife needs to be free to choose the course of action she wants to take in the full knowledge of her husband's willingness to sacrifice his life for her sake. There's a lot to digest here, isn't there? And there's some challenging messages for all of us. If you're thinking, crumbs, this all sounds rather profound, then keep those ideas floating around in your head. But we're going to move on now briefly to look at the other two relationships Paul talks about. And this will be in a briefer fashion. And therefore, I can't hope to cover all the depth and seriousness of what uh, the little bits that follow deserve in the short time I have. Instead, I'm going to jump in with some possible applications of what Paul says. So in the relationship between a child and a parent, and I say parent, not so the father, it says in our NIV translations in chapter 6, verse 9, because the Greek allows me to make this obvious step. Simply put, any child who wants their parents or guardians to flourish should obey them to the Lord. This is an instruction that's the Lord. This is an instruction for the children. But the instruction in the Lord is crucial. When a parent brings up a child in such a way as confirms God's love, they are worthy of honour. In such cases, when a child obeys their parents' instruction, it's going to make life easier for everybody's sake. 
But when a parent abuses a child in violation of God's law, the child is not called to obey and shouldn't feel ashamed or guilty about reporting uh, their parents to the appropriate authorities. If this is a battle you've had to face in your own life, then I pray that God might pour out his grace into your situation and that he would help to heal some of the scars that remain. If it would be helpful to talk this through either with myself, with Mike, or a female member of our pastoral team, then please know that we are available. Paul next moves on to instruct parents who want their children to flourish. And following his direction certainly requires a maturity which comes with greater experience and a certain degree of wisdom and age. Personally, I find not exasperating my eldest daughter, Hannah, is easier said than done, and she is only three years old. Rumour has it, it only becomes more difficult as children get older, into and throughout their teenage years. So I don't want to stand up here and pretend to be able to give you any advice whatsoever in this area. But I would say that if you're a parent or a grandparent hoping to bring up uh, your children within the Christian faith, as per verse 4, you can't afford to delegate the responsibility of teaching them about the love of Jesus, the joys of worship, and the rhythms of prayer to anyone else, including this church. In times past, there was a view that if you simply input your child into the sausage machine that was the church at age 3, then out would pop a Christian ready for confirmation in their early teenage years. The truth is that a child can have a faith of their own and that they need to see the love of God modelled in the reality of their parents' lives. On the baptism course, I give the example of trying to teach my eldest daughter, Hannah, to play tennis and to become a good tennis player. And I say, imagine if I was just to buy my daughter a tennis racket and send her to the tennis club and then pick her up. On the way there, on the way back, there was no commentary about how she was getting on. Is she likely to thrive in that context? Or rather, if I was to take her to the tennis coaching lesson, if I was to watch her, encourage her, if I was to then play tennis with her myself, if I was to take her to Wimbledon to see the really good players play themselves, would she not be more inspired to fall in love with the game and encouraged to go on and develop a relationship with tennis? So it is with a child's relationship and the way we nurture them into a love of God. As a church, what we promise to do is reinforce all that you parents and grandparents and godparents are already doing to encourage a child in their discovery of Jesus. But we cannot do it for you. We'll find now for the last couple of minutes only, looking at the relationship between slaves and masters in chapter 6, verse 5. Slavery was simply a part of the ancient economy. And whilst the working conditions were not great at all for the slaves, it did provide employment. And in a, at this time, in many senses, it was seen as a type of profession. So there is a degree of overlap with our working situations today, particularly knowing the hours that some of you keep at work. Of course, in the Ephesian context, this work was a relationship that took place within the master's household. And perhaps the closest fit we have today is found in the role of a nanny or a childminder, an au pair or a house cleaner. 
But what I want you to really see from the closing verses is Paul's huge adjustment to the cultural norms. Paul tells both the slave and the master to look up to the bigger realities. Whoever calls himself a Christian is a slave of Christ, no matter their earthly status. This instruction Paul gives both to the slaves and to the masters on earth. Both employee and employer are to serve wholeheartedly as if they were serving the Lord. Now you're going to have to think through the implications of this for your own situations yourselves. But as we close, let us remember our supreme example of servanthood who wants all people to flourish. It's found in Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed, got up from the supper with his disciples, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. He then got up and told them to do likewise. Go out into the world and hope, help other people to flourish. Will we do this now, reflecting on this passage in the name of God. Amen.